This morning's scripture reading comes from Romans 15, verses 14 to 33. It can be found starting on page 949 in your Bible that's under your seat. Romans 15, verses 14 to 33. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God." So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. There, I just saw a green light. 
Yeah, that's good. All right. All right. Many of you will know that uh, for, for nearly 24 years, uh, our family worked in, in Ethiopia. And when we were there, we would sometimes come back to the States for uh, what they called the home assignment. Um, and one of the things that, that people sometimes ask us, you know, when they, particularly if they weren't church people, was why in the world would you, would you want to live in a place like that? And, and sometimes it made it worse if we used the word mission to, to describe what, what we were doing. It can sound a little creepy, um, a bit too much like the guy from the, in the article in The Guardian that I read recently, and, and he had, uh, had realized um, through visiting a psychic that he was the Messiah. Um, he'd come to this, this realization, the psychic had channeled Mary Magdalene and, and told him that he was the Christ. And he said, suddenly I knew that my mission was to spread the spiritual rules of unconditional love, unconditional sharing, never judging, and having faith in the universe. And if I can convince just one person, it'll be worth it. When I read that, I thought, well, it must be nice to have a mission to persuade you know, the secular people of the UK something they already believe. That would be really nice if that was, if that was the mission. But he comes across as a little weird, even if his message is one that pretty much everyone already already accepts. He claims he can affect the weather, uh, that he can influence the outcome of football matches. Um, so, so, except when he's drunk, he said, um, he lacks the meditative focus necessary. Um, so the, the, the journalist writing this, this article was a classic British takedown. The, the author of the article writes, he's bright and articulate and he seems terribly well. Until he opens his mouth. <laughs> and then everything goes, goes wrong. So a term mission can, can be, in, in some contexts, quite, quite problematic. On the other hand, to some, it may not seem to mean too much at all. After all these days, you can walk into a medical office or even into a fast food restaurant, and it's got its kind of mission statement very prominently, prominently displayed. And it's just a statement that expresses what they're trying to do for their, for their customers. Nothing too weird about that. The weirdness comes when the term is used in a way that conveys something of the original sense of the, of the term from which we get our English word mission, missio, to be sent. We're sending. It's no problem for a fast food franchise to have a mission to want to serve me the best hamburger on the planet. I'm, I'm good with that. But when some you know, 16-year-old kid with a funny hat tells me he's sent from God to, to serve me that hamburger, then it gets a little, a little strange. It's a little weirder still, I suppose, that, that when, you, when you come to the section on mission in our pamphlet that explains our values, that's, that's exactly where the, the, the focus is. It's, it's this idea that we're sent, we're sent to be neighbors, now, if I went across the street and told, you know, I moved into a neighborhood, I ring the doorbell and say, I've been sent by God to be your neighbor, that's probably going to weird somebody out. It's going gonna, it's gonna to seem a little creepy. But that's where our first one is, sent to be neighbors, sent to be storytellers, sent to be 
disciples and sent to cross barriers. Now we're going to touch on all those at least a little bit this morning, but as in all of these recalibrate messages, this is the last in the four-week series, in all of these messages we focus particularly on discipleship and on disciple-making. And as I think Mike mentioned in one of his sermons in this series, the whole notion of being disciples or making disciples, that has a bit of kind of weirdness built into it already. So, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, you know these acolytes of Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, the, the, her lifestyle brand, Goop. You know, I, don't, I think they call them Goopies. Um, Ezra, you know about, <laughs> about this. Um, so, if, if you combine the idea of disciple-making with the idea of being sent by God, I mean, I have to admit, that's, you know, from an outside point of view, that's a little, little weird. You kind of hit the jackpot when it comes to seeming like a complete Fruit Loop. <laughs> and yet, it does reflect a way of thinking about the world that's deeply embedded into, into Scripture. It's the idea that, that God has, has given us a task. He's imbued us with a task and a, and a purpose that mirrors God's own purpose in loving the world and sending his son into the world for our good. God has tasked us with a certain way of being in the world, to live alongside of, of other people as people who, above all, love God and love their neighbors. He's tasked us with, with living inside of a story, a story that we, that we know so well that we tell it with ease because we live inside that story, not just because it's good news, because it just permeates everything we think and everything we do. He's tasked us with helping others know and live inside that story as well. He's tasked us with the responsibility of seeing that done behind and beyond barriers in places where Christ is not yet known. So God has given us, he's given us a mission. And the text that we're looking at this morning tells us several things about that mission. I think it's, it's important for us to, to, to pay attention to. A long text, we won't be able to unpack all of it. But I'd like us to look at, at three things that are an emphasis in, the, in this text. First of all, the source of mission. The source of mission. Extremely important that we, we lay hold. If we're going to be motivated in mission, if we're going to take up the task of mission, that we understand the source of mission. And what Paul sets out here is that the source of mission is God himself. It is the astonishing and yet perplexing work of God. It's astonishing, Paul says, uh, and, and we see this in the early part of this passage, and uh, one of the things that Paul makes clear in verses 17 to 18 is that whatever has been accomplished, whatever has happened through his mission, it's been because of Christ. So there's simply no other way to think about mission. This is the, the powerful working of, of God. And he describes his own role as that simply of a priest, someone who is acting as, as an agent sent by God 
so that what is accomplished, he's been entrusted with a God, so entrusted with this work by God. He's doing ministry whose success, the success of which completely depends upon God. He said, it's not me that's doing all that has been accomplished. It's God. So the whole idea that one day the nations would come to be, the Gentile nations of the world would come into obedience to God, would become worshipers of God, that's God's idea. And what God is doing in accomplishing this is nothing short of astonishing. And Paul says, look, it's happening. I've, I've traveled in this vast ark, beginning in Jerusalem, all the way up through Illyricum. That's modern-day Albania and Croatia, just across from, from, from Italy. And he's, he's writing this letter in anticipation that his travels westward will take him eventually into Italy, to Rome, and then on from there to Spain. And some suggest that his plan was to, to keep going in a circle all the way back to Jerusalem across North Africa, traversing, as it were, all of the provinces of the, of the, of the Roman Empire. It's extraordinary what, what's, what's already happened. And it's happened only within the span of about 10 years. In province after province and city center after city center, Paul has proclaimed the good news and Gentiles have come to faith. There's no way that that could have happened unless God had done it. It's still happening. When we arrived in, in Ethiopia in the early 1990s, there was a uh, people group, and we went through language school with some people who were forming a team to go to that people group. It was the Ma'en. No known believers among the, among the Ma'en. Fifteen, small people group, but 15 years later, 28,000 self-identified as, uh, as Christians. One of the first was a father named, named Gebre, and I remember getting a re- an email from one of the members of that team, and he, and he wrote that, that Gebre had been sort of ostracized by his family, who were, uh, who were spirit worshipers, uh, they were pagans, but he had, had, had remained faithful. And the Lord had sent him to a neighboring group called the Bodhi, it's kind of a very closely related group, sometimes called the Lowland Men. And he was walking through this sort of shoulder, shoulder-high grass, and these, these three armed Bodhi came out of the grass. And they said to him, um, you know, somewhat roughly, are, are you a believer? And he said, yes, what do you want? And they said, we want to believe. We heard a rumor that someone would come along this trail with a message about a God who was more powerful than the spirits. Are you that person? And he said, yes, I'd, you know, let's sit down. I'll be happy to tell, tell you about this, about this God. And he said, no, 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 not here. So they walk through an hour through the tall grass, come to a clearing, and all these villagers are coming out of their huts. And by sundown, 15 of the villagers had, had believed. Within a month, 150, and many of them had, uh, had been baptized. All of this is the work of God. This is something that God alone can, can do. 
I tell that story in part because we've come back to the U.S., and we just don't hear those kinds of stories happening in the U.S., or really at all in many Western countries. Christianity, um, you know, may be growing at a a faster pace than most other places in the world in, in, in Ethiopia, but here it seems like it's kind of on the retreat, and Christians are, are on the defense. Often feels like Christians, unlike this fellow Gebre, have, have lost confidence in the gospel. Lost confidence in its power, the power of God in the gospel to change people's lives. Lost confidence in the idea that, that in the articulation of the good news, in the articulation itself... In the speaking of that story, there's power, power to change people's lives, to bring life out of what was dead. Yet there's a sense in which, given the the shift in, in cultural tides that make Christian identity in this context seem increasingly bizarre, when we see that happening, it's just as remarkable, maybe even more remarkable, in the story that I just told you out of southern Ethiopia. If this work, when it happens, is the work of God, the astonishing work of God, it's also often perplexing. As, we, as chapter 15 progresses, we have a sense in which somehow God has gotten in the way of Paul's missionary plans. He, he, he says in verse 22 that he's often been hindered in, in coming to them and in fulfilling his plans to be moving westward to, 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 to Spain. Now, in other texts, Paul can say that, that these delays and hindrances that he's, he's encountered are the immediate work of Satan. You know, Satan has hindered me, he, he can write elsewhere. But here he cites an Old Testament text. It's a very interesting text because it comes from the, a well-known passage from Isaiah 52 and 53. We, we, we often refer to it as the suffering servant. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard him will understand. That's the role of the suffering servant. He seems to be saying it's, it's precisely through the opposition and the and the rejection and the difficulties and the hindrances that God is accomplishing his work. This is how it's all, it's all happening. Paul's saying, the, the, he goes on to say that the hindrances are not going to, to stop. The, he alludes to his plans to go to Jerusalem. And he expects that it's going to, be, going to be difficult. That he's going to experience opposition and potentially even violence there. So he asks the Christians in Rome to pray for him in verses 30 and 31 because he's concerned about the potential for persecution when he goes back to Jerusalem. And those fears turned out to be entirely justified. He goes back to Jerusalem. He's attacked. He's imprisoned. He's subsequently shipped off to Rome and he suffers shipwreck. And then he's snake bit. He finally makes it to to Rome, but certainly not in the way that he had planned. Most suspect that he never even made it to Spain. 
lofty ambition, but he never made it. If the mission belongs to the Lord, if the mission is God's, we can expect that along the astonishing work of God, there will remain things that we simply do not understand. At one level, the outpouring of God's Spirit in places like China and, and Ethiopia belongs to a kind of broader pattern of God's working in the world as we, we, we look back across church history. As James say, says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? And we see that happening in, in, in many parts of the world. But not in every part of the world that is economically impoverished. But why Ethiopia and not next door in Somalia? Why China and not Bangladesh? I don't know that anyone has answers to those questions. Why the Lord is powerfully at work in one area and not in another. It's perplexing also even in our own context to think about why the Spirit of God might seem so powerfully to work in in the heart of one neighbor, while another neighbor is so resistant and hard to the things of the Lord. And this is why Paul says that this can only be accomplished by God through prayer. So Paul asked these Roman Christians to pray, to pray that uh, for those working in resistant areas, that God would open doors that he would rescue them from those who oppose the gospel. Pray that his ministry would be acceptable to the saints. There would be an open opening for the story that we have to tell. So the source of this mission is this amazing but perplexing work of God. The goal of mission. The second thing that Paul, I think, wants us to see here is that, that his goal in mission is not simply that a bunch of people would say, oh yeah, Paul, that's pretty interesting. I, you know, I, I, could probably, I could probably go along with that. No, his goal is much different than that. His goal is what he describes as the obedience of faith. The kind of obedience that comes from faith. It's mature disciples and mature churches Prepared to engage with what God is doing in the world. That's what Paul's goal ultimately is. So a common perception of, of Paul, and you see this even in, in literature on, on Paul, is that he was constantly rushing about from place to place, always eager to break new ground, always moving into new, you know, wanting to pioneer work in new, in, in new areas. And, and some of that is based on, on this passage. There's this restlessness at Paul. He's always wanting to be in some place new. But that's not really uh, how Paul describes his mission, and that's not, in fact, how he practiced mission. We see Paul's description of his aim in verse 18, where he speaks of how God has worked through his ministry to lead the Gentiles into obedience. And so often Paul is, he speaks about 
his anxiety for, for the churches. And he's, yes, he's pressing west, but he's constantly retracing his steps and going back to churches that he'd established before when they've encountered problems to kind of shore things up, to kind of encourage them along in the faith, to shore up their obedience and their understanding of, of the faith. You see, what Paul says here is how he both begins and ends the book of Romans. In chapter 1, verse, verse 5, Paul sa- says, This is the purpose of my being called to, to, to missionary service. Through him, through Christ, and for Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. That's how he ends the book in 1626, where in an expression of praise to God for the gospel, which has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. So it raises the question exactly what Paul means when he says that he fulfilled the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. What what does he mean when he says he fulfilled the gospel, or he completed the gospel there in verse 19? Clearly for Paul, his, his aim is not simply to get a bunch of individuals to profess faith. It's not the profession of faith that he's aiming for, but the obedience of faith. Paul's aim, his goal, was that the peoples of the world would obey God. That they would live the the transformed lives that God had designed for humanity. Now, that in itself can seem a bit odd, a bit strange, because it butts up against a, a good deal of what we in the West think about as kind of the meaning of human existence. What are we for? What should we be striving for? If we could distill that or sum that up, it's, it's find out who you are and be true to that. Authenticity. Find out who you are and be true to that. It's this, this journey of self-discovery and finding within yourself the courage to be true to what you find, no matter what you discover, whatever that may be. So many of our contemporaries would find it very difficult to swallow the idea that the, the conformity of our life, the conformity of our will to the will of someone else, that that should be kind of the, the, the goal of human existence, the point of what it means to be human. Paul's very clearly of a different mind. Paul's conviction was that obedience to God is what we're made for, that you're no more truly you than when you are living your life in imitation of someone else, in imitation of Christ, taking up his way of life, conforming yourself to his image. It isn't in that respect, that you reflect the image of God, what you're made for. So that was the theme to which Paul dedicates his whole life, his whole purpose, his whole mission is to see faith in Christ produce obedience 
in the lives of Gentiles. But for Paul, that obedience is only possible in community. Many have often drawn parallels between Paul and, and the religion, these itinerant religious philosophers who went around the ancient world preaching their messages. And they would appear in every you know, town of any size, had an amphitheater, and so the, you know, the whole town would, would, would roll out to hear these traveling preachers. And the point was to convert them to their way of thinking. And then the preachers would leave, and then they, you know, they, would, have, they would be enlightened, and, and so much the better for them. But Paul did something that had never been done before. He formed churches, multicultural churches, churches made up of people from Jewish backgrounds and as well as Greek backgrounds. And they came together. And it was in that context that Paul understood that people would grow in their capacity, their ability to obey God. A couple of things to, to note about this in, this in this chapter. First, whatever its problem, the, you know, the, the problems um, that there may have been in the church of Rome, Paul nevertheless regards the church as a mature church. What does it mean to be a, a, mature, a mature church? We see this in verse, verse 14. We'll come back to this in a, in, a, in a moment. But he says, I know that you're, you're full of... Of, of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, this reference to, to goodness and being complete in knowledge and able to, to instruct one another, I think this Paul's picture of what a mature church looks like. It's not, a mature church is not a church in which every believer you know, has reached a certain standard, behaving in a certain way. Instead, it's a church in which people are, being, are instructing one another. The knowledge to which he refers is, is moral discernment. They know how to discern the, the good from what's not good. When he says you're full of goodness, that's a, that's a very specific, that means a very specific thing in Paul's mind. In other words, he understands that God has made the world and imbued it with his own goodness, and human beings have rebelled against that. And so, particularly all through Romans, but particularly in this last half of Romans, this last section of Romans, he's encouraging them to conform their lives to the good. And he says, I see that in you. It's not that you've arrived, but you're able to encourage one another, to instruct one another in the good. You're taking responsibility for one another in your spiritual growth. You're holding one another accountable for growth, and you're, you're encouraging others in, in one another in the things of the gospel that will allow them to discern the good from what's not. It will encourage them to be obedient. And it's out of the overflow of that that Paul envisions partnership with, with them. See, I think a church that's, that's experiencing this kind of, of maturity, that's the sort of church that is thinking about, is beginning to think about outside of its own, uh, its own walls, it's beginning to think about others. 
We see this happening in different parts, in different parts of the world. The, the World Christian Database puts the number of missionaries sent out from Brazil at 40,000 in 2020. From South Korea, 35,000. Nigeria, 20,000. None of this happens without a growing maturity in the churches that has a vision for, for, for God's work around the world, for what God is doing in the lives of other people. Shares Paul's vision, churches that share Paul's vision, for the Gentiles coming to faith, for the peoples of the world coming to the obedience that comes from faith. So what then is the, is the means of mission? This is the third thing I want us to see in this, in this text. The means of mission. And here Paul says some very interesting things. He, he begins to speak in terms of these almost chaotic, but nevertheless very vibrant and vital connections between people, between churches, between Christians, and he describes these partnerships in all kinds of ways in in this text. But it's very clear that the partnerships exist between those who who desire to be and make disciples on the one hand, and those who God raises up to be and make disciples on the other hand. There's, There's this rich partnership, and it's very unexpected the way these partnerships form. The source of mission is God, and the goal of mission is the obedience of, of faith, obedience of the nations. The means of mission are these vital, vibrant partnerships between disciple makers that God brings into existence in order to meet that goal. And we see this, I think, in, in, the, uh, in Paul's description of the way that he thinks about the church in Rome. These are Christians. He, it's not a church he founded. These are not Christians he's ever met. And the potential for partnership between that church with himself and his missionary colleagues, but also with these people that they don't even know in Spain. Meanwhile, thinking all at the same time about the, the profound connections between these Christians in Rome and the Christians in the churches that he's planted elsewhere and Christians all the way back in Jerusalem. So Paul, as, as I mentioned, has this idea that when he makes it to, to, to Italy, when he makes it to Rome, that this church in Rome will be a kind of a base of support, certainly a financial support, but other kinds of support as well, to send him further west on into, on into Spain. We tend to think of, of Romans as this, this amazing treatise on, the, on justification by faith. It's an amazing treatise on the gospel. And and it is that. But I think students of Romans have also come to, 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 to see that there, there's a greater purpose for, for Paul. He's laying out his understanding of the gospel for a couple of very important reasons. One is there's some slight fragmentation going on in the church. He wants them to come together. He wants them to be, to be unified. But he wants them to be unified by the gospel and have a clear understanding of the gospel as the motivation for this partnership that will propel him onward to Spain. As they experience its maturing and unifying power, this church will understand clearly the, the, the message that Paul 
proclaims in the gospel, and they will support him in his mission on, on to Spain. But second, we see why he's looking specifically to this church. It may have had something to do with the fact that they are kind of on the, on the road, on the path. They're, he's moving westward. His journeys will inevitably take him through, uh, through Italy and through Rome. So geographical proximity, but that doesn't tell the whole story. It's not just geographical proximity. He sees that they are a particular kind of church. He sees that they are a church of disciple makers, a mature church. We saw that back in verse, uh, in verse 14, full of goodness and knowledge and competence to instruct one another. They're teaching one another, encouraging one another. They're coming together around the gospel, around the scriptures, and they're encouraging one another in faith. In other words, he sees in Rome the indications that they are the, the, the very thing that he is trying to, he aims to accomplish in Rome. Who gets it? They get it. What better source of support could there be for someone who sees that as the outcome, the, the, the aim of his mission, to produce churches full of disciples like that. Third, and maybe most profoundly, we see here evidence of Paul's ongoing concern to demonstrate the interdependence of believers all across the world. This interdependence that's, that the gospel creates and he, the, the practical form that that's going to take is a collection of money from all the churches that he's planted, that he's planning to take back to Jerusalem because the, the believers in the church at Jerusalem are suffering. They're poor. One level, what Paul is planning to do in returning to Jerusalem, he, you know, he's, he's, he's already made it as far as Illyricum. He just has to sail across the Adriatic, and there he is in Rome. Instead, he's going to go all the way back to Jerusalem, and he's going all the way back to Jerusalem knowing that it might not go well. But he goes anyway. He goes anyway. And it's kind of, it's, it's weird. If your aim is to get to Spain... Jerusalem's the other way. So why in the world is he going? Well, for more than a decade, Paul has invested huge amounts of time and, and energy in taking up this prob- very probably very substantial collection of, of money for the impoverished Jews back in, uh, back in Judea. And he gathered this from Gentile churches. Now, in, in the Greco-Roman world, certainly they knew about you know, giving money away, but you gave money away to people that you knew, people that could give you something in return. It was this kind of reciprocal, uh, reciprocal uh, relationship. It's a, kind of a patron-benefactor type of, of, of relationship. But you didn't give money to people you didn't know, and you certainly didn't give money to... To, to people who come from, you know, this, this kind of bizarre religion. People that come from, you know, from the, from the Jewish world. That was the great, you know, one of the great divides in the ancient world was between Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek. 
And now you have all these Gentile churches who've taken up this massive collection and Paul is concerned to take this back to the church in Jerusalem. For Paul, he knows that this, that this Christian faith on which he has staked everything, sacrificed everything, it depended crucially on the interdependence of people, the unity of love and sacrifice between people who had never even met. And what they shared was the gospel. For Paul, this was something, this was a, a kind of a practical demonstration of something that only God could do through the gospel. Creating love in the hearts of, of Gentiles for Jews and creating concern in the hearts of Jews for the spiritual well-being of Gentiles. Something only God could do. In our deeply divided country, in our deeply divided world, these are the dynamics that are created by the gospel. This is what God does through the gospel. It's what leads people together here once a month to, to pray for people they've never heard of. It leads people to, to give money to, for the sake of people who live around the world. It's what mobilizes churches in places like Libertyville to resource gospel ministry in communities that they've never been a part of. It's what motivates churches like this one to involve themselves in the ministries of, uh, you know, uh, such as those that we'll hear about a bit later in the spring. That you know, from when Stephen Love comes to speak to to our church about the work that he's, uh, he's planning to do. It's what leads poor farmers in southern Ethiopia to bring a big chunk of their, of their harvest to fund missionaries from their churches to go to the other side of Africa to reach the Fulani, a Muslim group that they, they've never met them. Churches in China to send workers by the thousands across the Muslim world headed back to Jerusalem. It's what leads some, hopefully a growing number from this church, to heed the words of Francis Xavier, who said, give up your small ambitions and go east and preach the gospel. These partnerships, these vibrant gospel connections between people who have otherwise nothing in common, no geographical connection necessarily, no socioeconomic connection, and when they come out of the same kind of cultural backgrounds, they come from different racial backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, and these rich, vibrant gospel partnerships form between them as God creates this new humanity. These churches, these partnerships, only form out of churches filled with disciple-makers, out of a culture in which we are one-anothering one, one another with the gospel, taking responsibility 
for the spiritual well-being of one another, encouraging and instructing one another, being intentional about the growth and obedience of those around us in communities like this one. And the extraordinary work of God as that happens is to create these extraordinary connections and partnerships and and interdependence between people who've never met for the sake of God's work around the world. This is the work of God. This is mission, and it's what God calls us to. Let's close with prayer. We thank you, Father, for your uh, entrusting us with the gospel, entrusting us with the task of mission, that we may be people who, who grow in our understanding of what it means to be faithful followers of the Messiah, but grow also in our sense of responsibility for, for one another, our intentionality toward one another, our investment in the lives of, uh, of one another. And out of that culture of disciple-making, we pray that you would raise up people to go beyond barriers to do that very same thing, and places where Christ is not yet known, out of those, that culture of disciple-making, that you would create connections to other communities, uh, create connections with, um, uh, between ourselves and the members of, the, uh, of other churches for the sake of, um, of gospel proclamation and the obedience of faith in the communities of Lake County. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen.